0: Reading from the book of Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Somewhere in the original version of the alpha course, Nikki Gumbel, who was the leader of that course, told the story of a foreign national who was working as a nanny or an au pair in the United Kingdom. And as he told the story, there was a day when she found one of the children that she was looking after engaged in some kind of mischief. Now, English was not her first language, so when she came upon this situation, what she meant to say is, what in the world are you doing? which would be kind of a common expression among North American English-speaking people. But what came out actually was, what are you doing in the world? Now the first question is kind of rhetorical. She probably didn't really need to ask because she could see with her own eyes the nature of what the child was doing. The second question, the one that she actually asked, is really what some have referred to as a first-order question. It's the kind of philosophical question that it seems few people bother to ask, and even fewer are inclined to answer. It's one of the questions, perhaps the first question, that we need to address in understanding the practical implications of what some would call our Christian worldview. Now, maybe you've heard that expression, worldview, before. Maybe you have some idea of what it means. It's it's an important expression. What, then, is this thing called a worldview that is so important to all of us, wrote James Sire in his book, The Universe Next Door. Then he answered his own question, essentially this. A worldview is a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold, consciously or subconsciously, about the basic makeup Of our world. Francis Schaeffer, the scholar and pastor, had written some years before the first area of philosophical thought, the first thing that we need to address in our worldview, though, is the area of metaphysics, of being. This is the area of what is, it's the problem of existence. This includes the existence of man, but we must realize that the existence of man is no greater problem as such than is the fact that anything exists at all. And this is the question um, that we really need to be prepared to ask those who believe in some atheistic version of evolution. Okay, so... You have this scheme by which you try to explain the ascent of man from lower forms of life. Well, even if we were to grant that that's possible, why is there man at all? Why is there a world? Why is there anything? Schaeffer went on, no one has said it better than Jean-Paul Sartre, who said that the basic philosophical question is that something is there rather than nothing. Nothing that is worth calling a philosophy can sidestep the question of the fact that things do exist and they exist in their present form and complexity. This is what we define then as the problem of metaphysics, the existence of being. To put it in a more simple form, what are you doing in the world? Or more precisely, maybe why is there even a world in which you can be doing whatever it is you are doing? In addressing this question, it's fair to say, I think, that we can boil it down to essentially three kind of radically different answers. The first answer that some would give is that we really cannot know. We simply exist. I think, therefore I am. And our existence is is felt by us in the realities of pleasure and pain. And even in the fact that if we are so inclined... We can go find a stump or a stool, and we can sit down, and as human beings, we can reflect on the nature of our existence. But really, we cannot know. And if we cannot know, then existence per se is not good, bad, or indifferent. It simply is. It's, it's just how things are. In the words of one pundit, pundit of 1980s rock and roll, Nothing matters, and what if it did? Philosophically, the position is called nihilism, the negation of everything. Knowledge, ethics, beauty, reality. In nihilism, no statement has validity. Nothing is truly true. I can tell you what I think to be true, but it's not truly true because nothing is truly true. Nothing has meaning, nothing has validity, Everything is gratuitous and contingent. And of course, if any of us really believed this, we probably wouldn't be here this morning. What would be the point? Rather, as the Apostle Paul said, if I can paraphrase him a little bit, let us eat, drink, and be merry, or not. It really makes absolutely no difference either way. Tomorrow we die. So who cares? That's nihilism, and it's one answer that has been given to the issue or the question of our existence. There are at least two other possibilities, I think two possibilities if we go in broad categories with some variation within. Both creation and evolution purport to offer an answer as well. And these alternatives, and I'm not dealing here with what some have called theistic evolution or progressive creation, I'm dealing with creation, as we find that in scripture, or the atheistic, godless version of evolution. And given those two alternatives, either the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible, or there is no God. And so his word couldn't have framed the world, and there must be some other explanation, either as it says in the Belgian Confession, we believe, and this is what our confession of faith says, we believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing when it seemed good to him by his word, that is to say, by his Son. And he has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions for serving their creator. Either that's true, or we need another answer to the question, what are we doing in the world? Of course, the alternative to creation would be some form of evolution. And just within the space of my lifetime, which is getting longer and longer, it seems, there have been too many iterations of that theory for me to even begin to enumerate them this morning. It kind of kicked off with the Darwinian concepts of natural selection and the survival of the fittest, but I'm of the impression at this point that those theories in their most basic and original form have been pretty soundly debunked, even by people who are not willing to exist the existence, or to admit the existence of God as an alternative. And actually, I think to call them theories is to give them significantly more credit than what they deserve. I will freely confess here, that I am not a scientist, and if I wanted to borrow a line from Pastor John MacArthur, I would say, if you want verification of that, just talk to any teacher in my past who tried to teach me science. I am not a scientist, except maybe in the sense that everyone is a scientist. They say everyone is a theologian, and just the other day I was doing an experiment where I was taking ground muscle mass from a steer and heating it up on, on a flame and then measuring the temperature to make sure that it was you know, at the right temperature that, that it would be tasty and delicious. It's kind of an experiment. Um, and that's about the extent of it. But I do believe that words have meaning and words matter. According to, as illuminating a source, as Merriam-Webster, a theory is a principle formed to explain the things already shown in data. So the problem with any theory of origins is that, by definition, the origin of the universe cannot be observed. We weren't here when it happened, and it cannot be repeated. And even if it was to be repeated, we would have no way of knowing for sure if what happened the second time around was the exact same thing that happened the first time around. So in that sense, there isn't any real data to be had. And the definition of hypothesis is probably a better fit. That is, an assumption made before any research has been done. It is formed so that it can be tested to see if it might be true. Take, for example, the so-called Big Bang Theory. Now, not to confuse that with the situation comedy. The government website, nasa.gov, says this, astronomers combine mathematical models with observations to develop workable theories of how the universe came to be. The mathematical underpinnings of the Big Bang Theory include Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity, along with the standard theories of fundamental particles. Space.com is more forthcoming when it says flat out the Big Bang Theory is our best guess. That's the best guess guess of those who don't believe in God, but it's a best guess about how the universe began. The leading explanation for how the universe began. Simply put, it says the universe, as we know, it started with an infinitely hot and dense single point that inflated and stretched first at unimaginable speeds and then at a more measurable rate over the next 13.8 billion years to the still-expanding cosmos that we know today. But even though the definition of this untested and untestable hypothesis states the Big Bang Theory is the leading explanation for how the universe began, it's really nothing of the kind. All we would have to do is ask the simple question, where did the matter and energy contained in that infinitely hot and dense single point come from? Just take it one step farther back. If there was a big bang, and I don't think we need to grant that. And if all the matter and energy that we find in our universe today was contained in whatever, they used to talk about basketball size or softball size, now they're talking a single point. If all that matter and energy was contained in that one single, where did it come from? One possible answer that has been given is that before the universe in which we live, there was another Universe that had been expanding until it came to a point of cataclysm where it collapsed on itself and created that point of matter and energy. And before that, another, and before that, another ad infinitum. By this view, matter and energy are eternal. They have simply always been and always will be. Nobody created them because they were just. There, And every once in a while, as the wheel keeps turning around all by itself, it spins out some beings who are just self-aware enough to wonder why. Why are we here? What's the point of any of this? And it brings us back to nihilism. By the way, naturalism always leads there. We don't know. We cannot know what is, just is, and According to the Enlightenment, whatever is, is right. In her song from a long, long time ago, Woodstock, Joni Mitchell wrote, We are stardust, billion-year-old carbon. We are golden, caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Of course, sadly, if the first proposition is true that we are just billion-year-old carbon, then according to that our hypothesis, first of all, that the carbon from which we're made is way more than a billion years old, it's eternal, and there's no garden whatsoever to get back to, just that infinitely hot and dense single point which was the beginning of all things, at least on this time, around the wheel. According to the evolutionary hypothesis, we are nothing more than animated carbon on our way to the compost heap. So nothing matters. Of course not. And what if it did? Well, to be fair, we have to admit that from a scientific standpoint, any theory of creation would have the same limitations because creation as an explanation of origins cannot be observed or repeated, not by us anyway. But therein lies the difference and therein lies our hope. Creation requires a creator and that creator would be outside and entirely distinct from his creation. So if the creator was willing, and he was as the one who not only observed but also caused the beginning of all things, then he could also communicate to his creation so that we could truly know him and truly know about the creation and truly know the purpose for which he made all things. And this is, in fact, what has happened. And that revelation, that communication, begins with the words in the beginning, God created. And since there's no single Hebrew word for the concept of the universe as such, we're told in Genesis 1:1, the first verse of Scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is like saying in Hebrew, in the beginning, God created life, the universe, and everything. Borrow a title from Douglas Adams. And this fact that God created all things is fundamental foundational to our understanding of Scripture and faith. It is, as we saw last week, the first truth claim put forward anywhere in Scripture. Scripture begins, the Torah, which Moses gave to the people of Israel, began with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's also the first point in our confession of faith, The Nicene Creed says we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. We believe in God, the Father. And not only that, we also believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence as the Father, but wait, there's more? Through him, the Nicene Creed says, that is, through the Lord Jesus Christ, all things were made. And the Nicene Creed, using that term, all things, is just picking up on an expression that Scripture uses over and over and over again. And we knew that. For by him, all things were created, that is, by Jesus Christ. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. As we saw at the beginning of the Gospel of John, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the creed brings in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. It brings in Jesus Christ through whom God made all things. And it also says we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. That same Spirit of God who in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 was hovering over the face of the waters. So when we read, in the beginning, God created, what we're reading about is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some recent traditions have tried to break up the Trinity into God the Creator, Christ the Redeemer, and the Spirit the Comforter. That's a false way of viewing the Trinity The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in the work of creation from the very first moment in which this universe came to be. And they continue involved in it. Jesus Christ not only made all things, he sustains all things by the word of his power. He upholds them. He keeps them together. He keeps them running. And the Holy Spirit is that part of the Trinity that very often is found working out the decrees of God in the lives of his people. Creation is the work of the Trinity, and as such, it is the revelation of God himself. We know that God has spoken through his Son. We know that he has spoken in his word. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 tell us, for what can be known about God is plain to them. I'm going to be talking about this more next week, if the Lord is willing, because God has shown it, to them, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Again, we'll talk about that more next Sunday. But we read this as well in the call to worship last Lord's Day. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The creation is the work of the triune God, and the creation actually, it's not more important, as we'll see, but it precedes God's revelation of himself in his word. Before God spoke, even to Adam at the beginning of time he spoke and the world came to be. How do we know this? Well by faith we understand. I suppose the question that remains for the creationist and if you are a Christian then you are a creationist one way or another. You could be a progressive creationist. um, You could be a young earth creationist but you are a creationist. And I suppose the question that remains for us then is if the heavens declare the glory of God and there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard, then how is it that so many people look at the world and see something so completely different? Something that seems to lead away from God and lead inevitably, I would say, eventually to despair. And the answer is... If the Lord is willing, we'll look at that in more detail next Sunday. I often say things that take more than a week to say. For now, though, for this week, we turn to Hebrews chapters 10 and 11. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 37, says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. This is a quote from the Old Testament that gets picked up and dropped into a couple of different places in the New Testament. And it's always talking about saving faith. My righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere or preserve their souls. So this is what many people would call a salvation part. And anyone who knows me knows what I think of that. But if we allow the distinction at all, if we say there are some things in the Bible that are not about salvation and there are other things that are, regardless, Hebrews 10 is clearly talking about those who have faith to the preserving or saving of their souls. We're speaking of saving faith here, but we're not speaking in a vacuum. We're not saying, the writer of the Hebrews is not saying that a person can only be saved by faith and then leaving it up to pure speculation as to what is the definition of that faith. We need to remember when reading through the Bible that there are no chapter breaks in the Greek manuscripts on which our texts are based. So we have chapter 10 and chapter 11 and verse numbers and Paragraph headings that have been inserted by the translators. All of those breaks have been added to the manuscript down through the years. They are not there in the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have. So there's no break then between Hebrews chapter 11, which many of us kind of know what that's about, and Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about those who have faith to the saving of their souls and then right away in chapter 11, the author immediately goes on to say, now faith, that faith which some have to the saving or preserving of their souls, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hypostasis is that word for assurance. It means underneath reality, foundational Um, Older translations said faith is the substance of things hoped for. Neither of these translations is wrong. But the writer has just been talking about saving faith and now he's going to go on and show us what that saving faith looks like. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the certainty of things not seen it has been around for a long time. Verse 2, By it the people of old received their commendation. Got to be careful how we say that. But what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, essentially, salvation is by grace through faith. It always has been. It always will be. The faith that will save us is the same faith or the same kind of faith that saved people of old. And just in case we wondered what that looks like, Beginning in verse 3, he walks through the entirety of Old Covenant history. And he gives example after example, many of them from the book of Genesis, many from later on in the Old Testament, of what saving faith is and especially what saving faith does. But he starts in verse 3 by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word God. Of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible as I said the author goes on and I wish we had time to walk through all of Hebrews chapter 11 together but we don't so I will commend it to you go home and read Hebrews chapter 11 all the way through the first three verses at least of chapter 12 but for now notice that it begins with an understanding that the universe was created by the word of God. Faith in its most basic form is willing to hear and to accept what God says in his word and say, I know that's true because God said it and that's enough. We believe that the world was made, the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And that leads us all the way through that talk of old covenant saints in chapter 11 to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, witnesses, people who bear witness to the truth of all of the things that he's been saying through the book of Hebrews. He's not saying we're surrounded by people who are looking at our lives like people running a race or something like that he's saying as we look back through the history of God's covenant people there are all of these men and women who stand and raise their right hand and say I swear by the living God this is true this word is the word of God and what it says is true truth and since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Another way of saying that would be let us repent. Let us acknowledge that there are things in our lives which are displeasing to the God who made us. Let us turn aside from our sin and selfishness and acknowledge that at the bottom line we were made for God and not the other way around. Let us Repent, and let us run with endurance or with patience the race that is set before us. Let us persevere in the obedience of faith. When you read through Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to discover faith is not some intellectual quantity that I possess because I say I possess it. Faith is something that is the gift of God, not as a result of works. It's created in us through the Holy Spirit. And it changes us fundamentally and changes the way that we live. Someone said, and I can't really remember if this was faith or grace that they were talking about, but it applies either way. If the faith that saved you didn't change you, then it probably didn't save you either. Let us repent. Let us persevere in the obedience of faith. And where does that faith come from? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saving faith begins with the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, and it looks to Jesus alone as the source of eternal salvation. And what we see in the writer to the Hebrews' words here in chapters 10 and 11 is that creation and salvation are not two separate issues. They are inextricably entwined. We can't have one without the other. We can't believe that God made the world, but we don't need him anymore. And we can't believe that we really need salvation in some sense if we don't accept that God made all things and he created us to know him and to walk with him, to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, to glorify and fully to enjoy him. If we are nothing more than billion-year-old carbon on the way to the compost heap, then we really don't need a savior. We don't. And it's a good thing because everything and everyone else in this universe then is just a billion-year-old carbon. And there's no savior to be had. But if God the Father Almighty is the maker of all things visible and invisible through the word, his son, Jesus Christ, and also through the Holy Spirit who is himself the Lord and giver of life, then we are so much more than billion-year-old carbon. We have meaning and we have worth, not because we go out and we track it down and we lay hold of it, because God himself has given that to us when he created us in his image. And all of that being true, we do need a savior, and not just a savior, we need the savior, Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We are looking at creation in this series, and at some point it will probably move faster than it's moving right now. But as we look at creation, more importantly, we are looking at the creator. And I want to go back to the passage that I read from the book of Isaiah a little earlier as our call to worship. Isaiah said, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God. Read through the Old Testament sometimes with a view to how many times God says, if you want to know whether or not I'm the real thing, well, I'm the one who created the world. He points to creation in the prophets as a verification of his power and authority. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. Keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other. A God besides me, a righteous God, and a Savior, there is none besides me. We need a Savior And there's only one Savior to be found. It's the God who by his word and spirit created all things and calls us to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Now may the Holy Spirit fill us and give us the grace that we need to believe, to turn to him. And to be saved through faith in our creator, redeemer and savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May we pray. Father, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying through your word to the church. And, Father, give us hearts that are open and receptive to believe and to put into practice, to follow Jesus, and, Lord, to walk in the ways that you have called us as your people in him. We pray in his holy name. Amen.